ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Greetings, this is Tom Gilson. Today's podcast presents Hank Hanegraaff coming to us with our thanks, along with Discovery Institute Senior Fellow Richard Weichart in the first half of a conversation on Weichart's book, Darwinian Racism, among other related things. You'll hear Hanegraaff speaking first as they begin. I've spent the last couple of weeks immersed in the writings of Dr. Richard that anyone who's spent even a modicum of time looking at the progression of scientific speculation knows full well that academics are not impervious to groupthink. And that is particularly true when it comes to tenure, social dynamics, grants, and the like. But we would be hard-pressed to come up with a better example of herd mentality than the collective embrace of eugenics. The moniker eugenics, or what's known as the science of being well-born, was coined way back in 1865 by Sir Francis Galton. If you don't know about him, he was a prestigious polymath, he was a sociologist, he was a psychologist, an anthropologist. He was also cousin to Charles Darwin. And Darwin actually followed suit In The Descent of Man, he made explicit that his notorious subtitle, The Preservation of Favored Races and the Struggle for Life, quite rightly applied to human races. Apart from eugenics, according to Darwin, there is nothing to prevent the reckless, the otherwise inferior members of society from increasing at a quicker rate than the better class of men. Well, groupthink, and that's the point I'm trying to make right here, is groupthink followed on the heels of Galton and Darwin. And so with the dawn of the 20th century, eugenics became standard fare in high school biology textbooks. I think off the top of my head right now of George William Hunter's textbook, We all know about it. It was titled A Civic Biology. And I, like most other Americans, remember it because it was the infamous biology text at the center of the 1925 Scopes Monkey Trial. And of course, this text made a stirring case for the pseudoscience of eugenics. And all of this has been breathlessly touted by the evolutionary establishment as evolvement. In reality, it represents a throwback to 19th century scientists who hypothesized that the gene pool was being corrupted by the less fit genes of inferior people. And we want to talk about all of that today because my guest is a historian who ably notes what happened in the last century. But he also has ably made parallels to what is happening in our century. My guest today is Dr. Richard Weikert. He's an emeritus professor of history at California State University, and he's a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute. He's an author. He's written many books, including From Darwin to Hitler, 
And one of my favorites, a book that I have to confess I'm only halfway through right now, it's titled The Death of Humanity. In addition to his many books, he has published articles in scholarly journals, including articles for our own flagship magazine, The Christian Research Journal. His most recent book is Darwinian Racism, How Darwinism Influenced Hitler, Nazism, and White Nationalism. It is great to have you on Hank Unplugged. I've listened to some of your interviews and find you to be a direct fit for our mission statement. You're interesting, you're informative, you're inspirational. Welcome. Yeah, thank you so much. It's great to be with you. Well, let's start out with an obvious question, perhaps, and that is, looking at Darwinian racism, your book, was Darwin a racist? Yeah, there's actually not too much debate about this among historians who look at this issue, because Darwin clearly taught in the descent of man. He doesn't say much about humans, by the way, in The Origin of Species, and some people say, well, he didn't really talk about humans there, but well, 12 years later... He published The Origin of Species in 1859, but in 1871 he published The Descent of Man, where he made very clear his views about race as well as other things. And he made very clear that he not only believed in the differences in the mental abilities and even moral capacities of different races, but perhaps even more strikingly, he believed that these races were in competition in the struggle for existence, and that because of that some of the races that he considered superior, and of course he thought the Europeans were superior, uh, were going to exterminate those who were considered inferior. And so something has to be done about that, and that's why in the prologue they brought up the word eugenics, and I really want to focus on that for a few moments. Eugenics was not only something that was proliferating in Nazi Germany, but it was proliferating throughout the United States of America. I mean, you have some of the most prestigious minds from presidents to, well, Margaret Sanger, who's the birth mother of Planned Parenthood, to Carnegie, to Rockefeller, to Stanford. You had all of these prestigious universities and people promoting eugenics. And it wasn't until the ghastly results of eugenics became apparent to all in the Nazi death camps that it quietly vanished into the night. Yeah, exactly. Eugenics was considered scientific mainstream. There were courses on eugenics in American universities. Biology textbooks taught eugenics as really as a matter of course. And it was built upon Darwinian ideology, and then Galton, you mentioned, was a cousin of Darwin, but we don't want to go into the guilt by association, but Galton himself said that he came across the idea of eugenics while reading The Origin of Species, his cousin's book. So it was very intimately connected with Darwinism, and if you look at the ideology of the eugenics proponents in the uh, late 19th and early 20th century, they were claiming forthrightly that they were building their eugenics notions on Darwinism because they thought that humans, by having institutions that help the weak and the poor, had sort of contravened the Darwinian struggle for existence, and that this then was going to allow the weak and the sick to reproduce and to swamp, essentially, the 
good genes, so-called good genes, of the other people in society. And so they needed to find a way around that, which was eugenics. So eugenics was artificial selection. And by the way, one of the favorite tools of the eugenics movement in the early 20th century was compulsory sterilization. And Nazi Germany was not the first place to do that. Nazi Germany did do that. But the state of Indiana in the United States was the first jurisdiction to pass a compulsory sterilization law. And California passed one two years later, and many states in the United States passed them in the first half of the... In fact, over half the states in the U.S. had compulsory sterilization laws, which were intended to try to improve human heredity. Yeah, that was back in 1907. Amazing that you have the state of Indiana passing the first compulsory sterilization law. And then, as you point out, a lot of other states followed suit. Your title, Darwinian Racism, how Darwinism influenced Hitler, Nazism, and white nationalism. I want to get into all of that, but you've pointed out in other venues that this outrage, this outrage of sterilization laws and eugenics was actually being preached in America in liberal Protestant denominations. Yes. In fact, there's an entire book out by Christine Rosen, a scholar who's looked at that issue. It's called Preaching Eugenics. That's the title of her book. And in that book, she looks at the way that mostly Protestants were preaching, supporting eugenics, and it's overwhelmingly from the liberal Protestant side, which was sort of the mainline denominations in the early 20th century in America. So the liberal Protestants were trying to jump on the bandwagon of anything that was considered scientific at the time. So they embraced Darwinism, they embraced eugenics, uh, they embraced scientific racism, the topic of my book, Darwinian Racism. So racism is inherent in Darwin's theory. We're embracing Darwinism in our academic institutions today. And yet, so many people that tout Darwinian evolution are dead set against racism. They're preaching against racism while maybe having some cognitive dissonance, not recognizing that they're buttressing the very edifice that produces racist ideology. Yeah, you know, doing intellectual history is kind of tricky because you're right. People sort of mix and match ideas sometimes, and they don't always fit together. So in this case... The reason why racism was so fundamental for Darwin's theory about human evolution is because Darwin wanted to show that there was as much variation as possible within the human species. And in fact, if you look at his book, Origin of Species, where he doesn't talk about humans to any extent except the last couple pages he mentions them, the first chapter is on variation under domestication, and the second chapter is on variation in nature. So he has to try to show there's as much variation as possible for evolution to get off the ground. So in the human species, when he turns to humans, he uses racism, which was pre-existing. I mean, Darwin did not invent racism. It was a prejudice that he had already growing up and such. But he was going to integrate it into his theory by claiming that this shows that humans have variation, and it served his purposes to try to show that humans have the widest amount of variation possible. So they considered not just Darwin, but many Darwinists after him, and I do examine some of these in my book, such as Ernst Haeckel, the most famous German Darwinist of the late 19th century, were making claims. Haeckel, for example, was claiming that the lowest humans, which he thought were the Australian Aborigines, he thought were closer to apes in their mental abilities than they were to the Europeans. 
And this was standard fare. This was not an unusual position for Darwinists to take in that period. So they're trying to show that there's this gradation, you know, from the lowest humans, which are close to apes, to the highest humans, which are further away. And so it serves the purpose of their theory to show as wide a variation as possible. Now, in the 20th century, as people began to move away from racism, especially in the intellectual elites in the middle part of the 20th century, they began claiming that, you know, that genetics and such show that there's not as wide a variation between the races. And, of course, they started recognizing empirically that a lot of people of other races are highly intelligent and they're not inferior intellectually. And so that sort of creates some cognitive dissonance. So they had to sort of set aside this idea of racism. And thankfully, they've set aside the idea, at least most intellectually, to set it aside. However, as I show in my book, there are some people on the white nationalist side who are continuing to promote the idea that Darwinism promotes racism. Yeah, I want to talk about that a little later on in the podcast, but fair to say that Darwin considered racial inequality as evidence for his theory. Yeah, and what's interesting is that after... Okay, so Darwin sees racism as evidence for his theory, and what's interesting is that after Darwin, once Darwinism became established as a sort of scientific consensus by roughly the turn of the century or so, many of Darwinists at that point and in the early 20th century were arguing that Darwinism proves racism. So Darwin thought that racism proved human evolution, and later evolutionists were going to say Darwinism proves racism because there has to be variation in the species for evolution to happen. Darwin also saw genocide. I mean, we're hearing a lot about genocide today with the war in Ukraine, but Darwin saw genocide as a progressive force in human evolution. Exactly. In fact, in The Descent of Man, here's a quotation from The Descent of Man where he's talking about this very issue, and he said, quote, at some future period, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace throughout the world the savage races. And so he thought that was how evolutionary progress was going to happen, by these so-called lower races being exterminated. The higher races survive, and that brings about evolutionary progress. I wonder in this woke environment we live in today, why statues of Darwin aren't being pulled down? Because he not only believed that there were differences in cranial capacities between various human beings, but he also believed in the intellectual inferiority of women. That women were intellectually inferior in whatever they might take up. And I read this myself in The Descent of Man. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting point you raised there, because Darwin, together with other anthropologists of his day, thought that cranial capacities were a way to measure the intellectual abilities. We now know that's not true, but Darwin thought it was, and women do have, on the average, smaller cranial capacities, because their bodies are smaller and such. So, But Darwin, you're right, did use that as evidence to claim that women are intellectually inferior as well. As to why the statues aren't toppled, I think that there are just too many people worshiping Darwin. (laughs) You've already sort of touched on this, but I want to expand on this if you would, and that is the subtitle for origin. Can that rightly be applied to humans? There are a lot of woke, educational, polymaths, people that we're familiar with, names that roll off our tongue, who are saying today that the subtitle the preservation of favored races in the struggle for existence does not apply to human beings. Well, in the 
origin of species, Darwin barely mentions humans. Only in the last couple of pages does he say anything about humans. But in that last couple of pages, he does make clear that he does think his evolutionary theory applies. And if you read Darwin's notebooks, he was already theorizing about human evolution quite extensively before writing The Origin of Species. And then if you turn to The Descent of Man, written 12 years later in 1871, he makes very clear that the things that he laid out in The Origin of Species do apply to humans. So the question is sort of tricky, because was he talking about favored races in origin of species? Does that mean human races in origin of species? Well, mostly he's talking more about like what we think of subspecies of like pigeons and other kinds of things. But you turn to the descent of man, and he clearly is talking about races, and he actually does say that races are subspecies. He doesn't think they're separate species. He claims that there is one human species. Darwin does argue for the unity of the human species. But he argues that there's different subspecies, which he thinks are these races. Now, interestingly, some Darwinists after him, like Ernst Haeckel, were going to argue that different human races are actually completely separate species. And some, there were even a few, not very many, but there actually were a few Darwinists, anthropologists in the late 19th century, uh, who argued that different human races, and here they were thinking particularly about the white Caucasians as one branch, the East Asians as another major branch, and the black Africans as another major branch. They thought that those three branches had actually evolved from different ape species. And so they saw so that much separation and division and variation within the human species. You brought up Heckel a couple of times. You know, he is someone who has really impacted so many of us in different ways. We've all seen his drawings, and I'm surprised that those drawings are still extant. Ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, right. that the emerging embryo goes through all of the evolutionary phases, so at one time it's a fish, and later on it becomes a frog, and right. eventually it becomes a fetus. And by the way, that was actually used as an argument for being able to abort early on, because when you're aborting early on, you're aborting a creature as opposed to a child. Right. Yes, uh, Heckel's drawings uh, still, or at least, if not the drawings themselves, at least the ideas you're suggesting is sort of taught as standard fare in many places. And you're right, it was used to justify these kind of positions, that human fetus is closer to animal than it is to a human, sort of buying into the evolutionary deception. And by the way, interestingly, there were anthropologists and psychiatrists and such in the late 19th, early 20th century, they were arguing, too, that people with mental illnesses were closer to apes than they were to humans because they hadn't intellectually developed enough to be like humans. You write a lot about Adolf Hitler, what the Nazis did. Adolf Hitler famously said that only humans, and especially the church, have made it their goal to artificially preserve the weak, the unfit for life, and the inferior. And though he made statements like that, there are a lot of people that are arguing that Hitler was actually a Christian, because you can find him advocating for Christianity on the other side. So he was certainly a chameleon. Definitely. In fact, I think I actually use that word, chameleon, in my book, Hitler's Religion, where I talk about Hitler's religious beliefs. In my book, Hitler's Religion, I argue that Hitler was a pantheist, that is, he believed that nature was God. He was very slippery, though, you're right. He was a, a consummate politician. It's interesting, if you look at the statements that he made very positively about Christianity, almost all of those were in the early phases of his political career, most of them before he became uh, Chancellor of Germany, 
and dictator, and a couple of them maybe just right after when he's still trying to woo the German public over to his side. And let me give you one very poignant example that I discovered while I was doing my research on my book, Hitler's Religion. Heinrich Hoffmann, who was Hitler's personal photographer, took a photo of Hitler leaving a church. And in this photo, there's a cross in the background, but it's right over Hitler's head, the way the you know, the way the angle is of the photo that's being taken. It's a real bright white cross standing right on top of Hitler's head, the way the photo was taken. And it looks like, you know, sort of gives Hitler this halo effect, you know, sort of makes him seem like he's saintly or something. And, and here's Hitler coming out of a church. So you think, okay, he gone to a church service, and here he is, this bright white cross over his head. And the caption to the photo says something to the effect of Hitler, the supposed heretic, you know, coming out of the Marine Church in Wilhelmshaven. So, interestingly, that was published just before he became Chancellor. That was published in 1932 originally. But then several years later, Hoffman published another edition of that book of photographs. And in that next edition that was published several years later, they airbrushed the cross out of the photo. So you don't have the cross over his head, you know, sort of giving him this Christian symbol with him. And the caption, of course, had to change as well. And the caption then read, Hitler sightseeing at the church in <laughs> Wilhelmshaven. So it's changed from you have Hitler having this cross over his head to Hitler, you know, just sightseeing uh, in this church. And that was sort of emblematic. Hitler did want to portray himself as being close to Christianity when he was running up to come to power. But after he was in power and didn't have to worry as much about public opinion quite as much, he wasn't quite as careful to maintain that kind of image. And also, if you look at his private conversations that he had, we have monologues that he held while he was at his headquarters during World War II. We have diaries from Goebbels. We have diaries from Rosenberg, who wrote down things that Hitler's talk to them about and things like that. And you look at those private conversations that Hitler had, it's very clear he was anti-Christian. I want to talk a little bit about Karl Marx as well, because we're talking about the subject of religion. Both Marx and Hitler hated religion. Hitler today certainly is being dispensed with as having any credibility whatsoever. If you mention Hitler, universally people are going to be against Hitler, except like the white nationalists and so forth. But Karl Marx also hated religion. When I was walking, I take walks every morning and I memorize something. I memorized what Karl Marx said about religion. He said, it's the sigh of the oppressed creature. It's the soul of soulless conditions. It's the opium of the people. And he said, the abolition of religion, therefore, as the illusory happiness of the people, is the demand for their real happiness. To call on them to give up their illusions about their conditions is to call on them to give up a condition that requires illusions. So the criticism of religion is, according to Marx, in embryo, the criticism of that veil of tears of which religion is the halo. So you have both Marx and Hitler as fierce opponents of Christianity, and yet in a lot of modern liberal Christian contexts, Marx is lauded as somewhat heroic. Yeah, Marx saw all religion as being a tool of oppression by the bourgeoisie to try to keep the 
working class down. Uh, basically, he saw religion as promising the, the oppressed people high in the sky by and by so that you can oppress them in the here and now. I mean, that's pretty much the way that he framed it. And so he believed that religion would simply disappear once the oppressive conditions disappeared. So he thought that as communist society, there wouldn't be any religion because there wouldn't be any need for it, because, again, he thought the need for it was to oppress people. So is it fair to say that Marxism is primarily, and probably the operative word would be primarily, about class struggle, Nazism, about racial struggle? Oh, exactly. In fact, Hitler actually used that term at one point. Hitler actually said one time that the difference between Marxism and uh, his own worldview was that Marxism was a class struggle and that he was teaching racial struggle. That's exactly the way Hitler framed it, and, and he's right. And another way to, to think about it, by the way, is that Marx was teaching environmental determinism, specifically that human behavior is determined by the economy, whereas Hitler believed in biological determinism, that is, that he thought that our behavior was determined by our race. So you have this notion of environmental determinism versus biological determinism also, which is a key difference between those two ideologies. I want to know why you are writing about Darwinism, why this is such a focus in your writings. Could it be because people like Dr. Alex Rosenberg are saying that if indeed Darwinism is true, then anything goes? Yeah, Darwinism has immense ramifications for our thinking about who we are as human beings and in thinking about racism. That's just one way. I've also written a good deal about how Darwinism has impacted people's ideas about ethics, about morality. My subtitle of my book, From Darwin to Hitler, is Evolutionary Ethics, Eugenics, and Racism. In fact, the original, when I began that research project for that book, From Darwin to Hitler, that book came out in 2004. But when I began that research project in the mid-1990s, I originally was going to focus on evolutionary ethics in the late 19th century. I wasn't even thinking about Hitler or the Nazis or anything like that. I was thinking about evolutionary ethics, trying to see how these Darwinists in the late 19th century in Germany had been trying to use evolutionary ethics to overthrow Judeo-Christian ethics, as well as Kantian ethics and utilitarian ethics and others. So that was actually my original focus of my research project. But then as I began focusing on evolutionary ethics, I began finding out that a lot of the people promoting evolutionary ethics were also promoting eugenics and euthanasia and scientific racism. And then I started looking at and seeing, this all sounds a lot like Nazi ideology. And so I started making the connection then with Hitler there. So yeah, I mean, these things have ramifications, and not just in Nazi Germany. Yeah, that's one of the most blatant examples of it. But here today, in the 21st century, we have Darwinism impacting debates about euthanasia, assisted suicide. I mean, look at, say, uh, Peter Singer at Princeton University. He's one of the most famous bioethicists in the world today. He's got an endowed chair at Princeton. Singer makes very clear that his embrace of abortion, infanticide, and euthanasia are all built upon a Darwinian foundation. So Darwinism has incredible ramifications for morality, ethics, and religion. Is Singer just an outlier? No, he's not an outlier at all. In fact, uh, there's a, an interesting book written by a colleague, philosophy professor at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. He's since passed away. James Rachel's, which is called Created from Animals, The Moral Implications of Darwinism. Uh, and that's an entire book arguing that 
Darwinism undermines Judeo-Christian morality and the sanctity of life ethic, and that therefore abortion, infanticide, and euthanasia are acceptable. He's not an outlier in the slightest, and in my book, Death of Humanity, in fact, I discuss quite a number of thinkers that have similar kinds of ideas. Again, I'm not saying this is universally held, but still, there are quite a number of thinkers that hold similar views. So, how terrifying is that? What are the ramifications? Well, I think it's, uh, obviously, it's dangerous, and that's the way it is with, I think, any uh, anti-Christian philosophy that tries to come along and demote ideas about God, about morality, and Darwinism is a powerful one. I'm not, again, I'm not arguing it's the only one. In fact, my book, Death of Humanity, I bring in a number of other philosophies, like Nietzsche's existentialism, which Nietzsche was in some ways anti-Darwinian, and his philosophy is also frightening. But yeah, Darwinism has a frightening side to it because it, it, of what it tells us about we as human beings. Now, when I say that, I know, I understand that there are some people who you know, have some kind of Christian commitment that believe in evolution, and because of their Christian commitment, they still uphold a Christian morality. And I'm thankful for that, that they still uphold that Christian morality. But on the other hand, I think there's some tension and it's at odds with the notions about Darwinism and how it is the source of morality, too. Darwin in The Descent of Man, by the way, did discuss this. This isn't just something that other Darwinists later on came up with. Darwin in The Descent of Man talked about how he thought morality had evolved over time to favor those that had certain moral traits and disfavor those who didn't, so the more fit ones would have these moral traits, they'd be more cooperative and such, and that helped them to win the struggle for existence against ones that were less cooperative and things like that. So these ideas about the evolution of morality are something that go back to Darwin himself. But yeah, it's uh, disconcerting to see people trying to tear down uh, Judeo-Christian morality on the basis of evolutionary morality. We've been listening to Hank Hanegraaff speaking with Richard Weichart. We encourage you to pick up Weichart's book, Darwinian Racism, today at your favorite bookseller. That's Darwinian Racism by Richard Weichart. For ID the Future, I'm Tom Gilson. Thank you for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.